0: Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Transfigured. This is another episode in the Church Father series with Sam and Hank. And this is our fourth and final episode on Athanasius. And if we don't finish today, I'm, I'm, I'm just done. I, I don't think I can take any more Athanasius. So we're getting through all of Athanasius today. Our first two episodes were on his early works on the incarnation and against the heathen. So you can go back and check those out if you haven't already. Our third episode on Athanasius was sort of about his middle life, his sort of middle biography. And just to set the stage, we had ended the last episode with Athanasius banished into the desert. A Arian emperor named Constantius, who was a son of Constantine, who was an ally of the Arians ruling the empire... And there had just been the Council of Sirmium in 359 AD, which was probably the largest church council of the fourth century um, in terms of numbers of people who attended it. You don't often learn about the Council of Sirmium in your church history classes if you learn it from an Orthodox or Catholic church because it is not recognized as an ecumenical council, even though it was probably the most ecumenical council of the fourth century. Um, And they had come up with uh, basically a compromise Arian-leaning creed that did not say that Jesus was homoousius with God the Father, but instead that said that the Son was like the Father. Um, And the word like in Greek was homoion, which means just like homo is similar, so similar-ish to God without using any words about substance or that sort of thing although it did say that he was eternally generated before all ages, which was um, uh, against one of the specific teachings of Arius. So it should be said that the Arians of this time didn't fully agree with all the teachings of Arius. And if anything had come a little bit closer to um, the pro-Nicene position, but they were just saying no more using words like substance or essence or those sorts of things. We'll just use simple words like similar and that will get past this uh, disagreement. And it seemed as if Arianism, or at least I would say mild Arianism or moderate Arianism was going to win the day. Athanasius in the desert, the emperor, he's a young man, he's only 44 years old, he's a strong Arian supporter. This church council had, which had met in Sirmium, um, Constantius had to use every form of persuasion and hammering to get everybody to agree to this. At this point in time, the western part of the empire, the Latin-speaking portion, is mostly pro-Nicene or pro-Athanasius, and the eastern part is mostly pro-Aryan. And he had gotten them both together uh, in a city that was kind of in between. He had gotten them to agree to this. Then he brought them all back to Constantinople and ratified it, you know, in the heart of the empire. And, like, finally, we got this figured out and done. So it seems like Athanasius is on the down and outs. Um so, do you want to say anything, Hank, before we pick up the story from there?
1: Oh, I—I th- um, I mean, uh, hopefully, uh, we can allow you to vent the rest of your spleen and get into uh, Athanasius' theology in a little more detail. But you know, this is your show, so um, you know, um, bring out, bring out the, uh, bring out the muskets and start shooting.
0: All right. So. In 359 AD, it seems like, as I mentioned, for all the reasons uh, that Arianism, or at least moderate Arianism, was going to carry the day. Um, but in 360 AD, the Persians are starting to make some incursions on the eastern front of the empire. I should also say that, um, kind of, if we look at the ebbs and flows of the strength of the Roman empire, We've mentioned that in the third century and around 360, 370 or 260 or 270 AD, the empire was in serious decline. and that was this, during the Paul Samsada episode and Queen Zenobia. But over the next couple decades, the Roman Empire got more and more powerful, again, kind of peaking with Constantine. Constantine had sort of put Humpty Dumpty back together again. He had reunified the empire sort of under this new Christian religion. He was a great military general. He was a great politician. He was a good administrator. The, The empire was as strong as it had been in a very long time. But over the couple decades after Constantine's death, there's some, like, he did the thing that a lot of Roman emperors did where he put his three sons equally in charge upon his death, which is like. Always a recipe for disaster, but you almost have to wonder that he knew that and that it's sort of a Hunger Games competition that he trusts that the strongest son will win the fight and that that's the one who should be emperor. And so, you know, some civil warring of that kind of nature was weakening the empire. And also literally the Aryan conflict itself was weakening the empire. This theological dispute was not just an argument between church people, but it was causing rioting in the streets division between the eastern and western part of the empire. It was distracting the emper- emperor's attention, all of those sorts of things. So by this time, the Persians are starting to notice that Rome's looking a little bit vulnerable. So they're kind of gobbling up some parts of Mesopotamia and the eastern part of the empire that are looking a little bit vulnerable. So uh, Constantius decides that he's going to go on campaign to fight the Persians. And he calls upon his nephew, Julian. Julian julian will be a big deal in just a little bit of a minute julian is the caesar which is caesar is underneath augustus it's like maybe what we would say as vice president so his nephew julian is basically vice president over in the western part of the empire and constantius calls upon julian to bring his troops over to the eastern part of the empire julian had just won a a very major victory against the germans in um on in the rhine valley And that the the German frontier had been more pacified than it had been basically ever. So they're feeling comfortable on their western flank. So uh, Constantius is like, hey, Julian, bring some of your troops over here in the east. We need to fight the Persians. And Julian basically says, no, I'm not going to do that. Um, My troops like me, they don't want to go fight over in the east. We're going to stay here. And Constantius is like, shoot, okay. So he goes and fights the Persians and wins some minor victories over on the Eastern Front. But he knows that he's probably going to come back and fight a civil war with his nephew, Julian. But as he's on his way to fight the civil war with Julian, he catches a fever. Historians think it was probably malaria. And he dies in 361 AD. On his deathbed, he names his nephew, Julian, as the successor that might seem a little bit weird this person that he was about to fight a civil war with he named successor but that's probably because he viewed him as strong and someone capable of leading and so better have someone strong even if it was his enemy so julian in 361 AD is enthroned so julian had been raised a christian he is the nephew of constant or he is the nephew of constantius and the grand i guess that makes it of constantine and he upon being enthroned, declares himself a pagan and that he had been faking his Christianity all along. You might know him better as Julian the Apostate, and this is where that name comes from because he apostatizes from Christianity. He says that instead of making Christianity the state religion, we're going to make Rome pagan again, and he starts reinitiating animal sacrifice in a pagan priesthood. He was specifically very interested in Neoplatonism and he had a very Neoplatonic kind of paganism that was influenced by the pagan philosopher Iamblichus. And he worshiped the, the sun god Sol Invictus, which if you remember from our Constantine episodes, that was the god that Constantine had worshiped before or kind of during or after or sort of together when he became a Christian. So Julian is basically reverting to his family's old traditions and saying that this Christian stuff is bogus. And Julian, he knows that the Christian church is relatively strong, and so he can't just like fight it outright. And so he does some steps that seemingly are designed to inflame the Arian crisis. It seemed like Constantius had gotten the Arian crisis under control with this sort of moderate Arianism and vague language that could make both sides at least reasonably happy. But Julian does things to kind of reignite the crisis. One of the things he does is he lets Athanasius return from the desert to become bishop of Alexandria again. One of the other things he does is he lets the Jews, he says that he's going to let the Jews rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. Um, Again, as a slap in the face to Christianity. And he also puts the extreme Arians in his court. And like none of these actions make sense together except in the light of he's trying to basically get Christianity fighting against itself so that it will be easier for him to bring down in his effort to revive paganism. Um, but one thing, so uh, when, when uh, w- what am I saying? When uh, Julian decides that Athanasius can return to Alexandria, the current bishop of Alexandria, who was George of Cappadocia, he was an Arian that had been appointed there by Constantius, when it is decided that George is going to be removed from his see, he is dragged into the streets of Alexandria by a mob of pro-Athanasius supporters and pagans. He is lynched in the public square of the city and his body is paraded around the city on the back of a camel and after this it is finally burned. And there are probably many hundreds of thousands of people who die in this riot, um, the Aryan virgins or the Aryan nuns are raped and, you know, all sorts of ugly stuff. And this is just in Alexandria. There are things happening like this all over the empire, but we're focusing on Athanasius's story. So Athanasius returns to his sea in a cloud of violence, basically. Um, and this is exactly what Julian wants to happen. He wants the Christians to basically rip each other apart so it'll be easier to uh, reinstate paganism. Um and but Athanasius, being an ever wily and ever under un, unpredictable person, when he returns as Bishop of Alexandria in 362 AD, he extends an olive branch to the moderate Arians. He says something, he wrote, nor do we here attack them as aeromaniacs, Aeroma- uh, Athanasius was a little bit like Donald Trump in that he was good at making up um, nicknames for his enemies. He called Aryans aeromaniacs. Um, so that was one of his nicknames they'd been using for a couple decades of the Aryans. Um, nor here do we attack them as aeromaniacs, nor as opponents of the father, but we discuss the matter with them as brothers with brothers who mean what we mean and dispute only about words. So basically what he's saying is like, hey, moderate Arians, um, we're just agreeing about a couple words here and there, um, so we can discuss this as brothers. And for Athanasius, who had this died in the wool reputation of being an anti-Aryan and basically viewing them as agents of Satan and using every kind of foul-mouthed insult against them for decades, for him to return from exile and then suddenly reach out a hand of friendship to the moderate Arians surprised everyone, basically including julian the apostate and julian upon seeing that uh, athanasius is building an alliance of uh moderate arians and pro nicenes he again sends Athanasius. or well he sends an arrest order for athanasius and athanasius being pretty good at this sort of thing by now escapes back into the desert so i think what what athanasius is doing is I think he's realizing that the Arians have moderated enough away from their position from the positions of Arius himself, basically at this point in time, affirming that the sun is co-eternal, just subordinate. And the moderate Arians mainly don't like words like homoousius, but Athanasius is like, well, if you get rid of the words, basically in, in essence, we're agreeing with each other. Um, And that uh, nothing helps unite two warring factions like a strong enemy. And Julian the Apostate being a pagan emperor is a scarier threat than uh, the Arians at this point in time. So this pressure from Julian the Apostate, uh, and I think Athanasius knows full well that Julian is trying to put Christians against each other, and Athanasius doesn't take the bait and instead reverses course and starts trying to build bonds of peace. And honestly, I think that this attempt to build bonds of peace between the moderate Arians and Athanasius and his supporters is really what forges the doctrine of the Trinity. I don't think that the doctrine of the Trinity is really pure Athanasius theology. It's the middle ground or the hybrid or the fusing together of these positions. So I'll pass it over to
1: you, Hank. Well, I mean, this is a good context. It's clear to me Athanasius is a fairly uh, fairly um, subtle politician.
0: He, he is he is wily and has in, ingenuity and does not always do what people predict him to do. Right. Um, he, 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 is, he has good tactics and a good intuition. And so as much as I dislike him, I will compliment him and give him credit where credit is due. He is savvy and shrewd like a fox.
1: Well, and Julian the apostate mouse trapped himself, and all of a sudden he says, All right, you're back in the desert.
0: Yeah. Or, well, okay. Julian tried to arrest and kill him, but Athanasius, being good at, at uh, evading attempts right. to kill him, escapes into the desert before that could happen. Yeah. Um, so.
1: Yeah, so that I find that I, I find that um, um, you know that is, so in essence what's happening is Athanasius is getting older he's he's maturing
0: mm-hmm. and he knows he knows that emperors come and emperors go and that he can play the long game and he's yep. got the patience to do that. So yep. the very next year Julian the Apostate is trying to style himself as a new Alexander the Great. Like I mentioned, he had a lot of military success against the Germans uh, on the German frontier, and so now he is going to do what his um, uncle had failed to do, and he's going to retake Mesopotamia from the Persians, and that's also imitating Alexander the Great because Alexander the Great had conquered Persia. So he's going to go on war campaign against the Persians. And for a while, he's actually having a lot of military success in Mesopotamia, retaking lands from the Persians. But he gets close to their capital and in a battle. And also Julian, to give Julian credit, he does seem like a genuinely brave dude. Like Alexander used to do, he actually is in the battle on a horse. And some emperors, you know, would sit back and let the minions do the fighting. But Alexander had been fighting among his people, and that was one of his ways of being successful as he rallied the courage of his troops and instilled fear in his enemies by being on the battlefield himself. And Julian does the same thing. There's a risk of doing that, though, and that he gets hit by a Persian spear. And allegedly, this might be apocryphal, but as he's dying on the ground uh, in a Persian battlefield, his last words are, Galilean, you have conquered. And Galilean means um, Jesus. He called, he called Christians the cult of the Galileans. Um, and that was his nickname for the Christians. And so allegedly, I don't know if this is true or not, on, uh, as he's dying in battle, he says, Galilean, you have conquered. So Julian the Apostate was emperor for like two or three years. It was a very short period of time. Um, and then what happens is, is that after his death, one of his generals, Jovian, who is a pro-Nicene, pro-Athanasian Christian is declared emperor, and Athanasius is allowed to return to Alexandria. I think he was only in the desert for like a year at that point. That was one of the shorter bandages. So, band so you're not going to
1: blame Athanasius for uh, for Julian's death, right?
0: Uh, I mean, yeah, I'll, I'll blame uh, the Persians and uh, some judge, some divine judgment.
1: <laughs> okay, all right, but Athanasius comes off clean on this one.
0: Yeah, Athanasius comes off clean on this one. Okay,
1: just want to make sure.
0: Yeah, I mean, Athanasius then returns to Alexandria. And so, but then one year later, this guy Jovian dies of smoke inhalation when like his tent catches on fire. So he was only emperor for a year. um, And then he is replaced by a guy named Valentinian who is the Augustus of the West, and a guy named Valens, who is the Augustus of the East. Valentinian in the West is pro-Nicene, pro-Athanasian. Valens, the Augustus of the East, is pro arian Athanasius then goes and voluntarily hides in the desert just out of an abundance of caution. But um, after a little bit, Valens is showing that even though he's an Arian, he is not going to interfere with church affairs as much as previous emperors have done and gives Athanasius some assurance of this and Athanasius again returns from the desert. So in the period of like 2 years he or 3 years he comes out of exile uh when uh Julian the Apostate comes but then Julian Apostate you know sends him back into exile and then like Julian dies so he comes back but then he goes back out in the desert and comes so he's like in and out of the desert like three times in like the period of 2 or 3 years. But After this return in 364 AD, he never goes into exile again. And from 364 AD to 373 AD, Athanasius is ruling as Bishop of Alexandria Alexandria from Alexandria, and he finally dies on May 2nd. 373 AD. He's probably in his mid eighties at this point. I don't, I'm not quite sure what he passes away from, but I think he was just old enough that was old age. And uh, he, you know, he dies on the high, uh, he dies in favor and he, and you know, there's a big funeral service for him and he, he dies as a hero. Um, And he was buried in the church of St. Dionysius in Alexandria and his legacy is sort of cemented from there on. Um, And most of his influence, I would say, and most of his famous kind of enduring theology comes from this period where he's an old man and he's able to sort of cement his legacy and ensure the triumph of his version of orthodoxy into the future. So that's basically the life of Athanasius. He was exiled five times during his life, the first time, if we remember, by Constantine. Um, and so he he's a—he's such an interesting figure. He knew basically every Roman emperor from the period of Constantine through the end of his life personally. He met most of them personally uh, and had either strong affinities or strong disaffinities with almost all of them, but he outlasted all of them. so. You have to give him credit for that. We'll talk more about his theology in a minute, but that sort of wraps up the story of Athanasius' life. Uh, Do you have any thoughts on that, Hank?
1: So he led a very interesting life and obviously his um, legacy is cemented on the Trinitarian theology that he helped popularize yeah and um, I think uh, it will be interesting to go into his uh, um, his theology quite a bit because I I think um, I think he was pragmatic in a lot of ways a lot more pragmatic about things if I can you know a good a good examples with Julian. It's like, all right, we basically agree, we disagree on some words, let's be in communion. And that ends the problems in Alexandria, which is exactly what Julian did not want. Right, right. He wanted upheaval, and he said there's became a chord because I think Athanasius, you could say wily, I would say wise, understood that playing into the current Caesar was going to create more problems for the church than solve.
0: Yeah, and I think really during that kind of last uh, 15 or so years, where he er, lasts about basically 10 years, where he gets to be the bishop sort of in peace, I think one of his main goals and activities is winning over and smoothing over tensions with the moderate Arians in the East. Because really what's happening, the East was pretty Aryan and the West was pretty anti-Aryan. And Egypt and North Africa were the um, swing vote in this situation. And that Athanasius knew that he had the power of the swing vote. He wasn't, Egypt wasn't as big as the West or as big as the East, but he could give either side the victory and so he, I think, realizes that this division, in order for Christianity to triumph and not have allow for a reemergence of paganism, that he needed to win over the East. And he does this by surprising people and trying to minimize the differences and uh, win over the moderate Aryans and um, basically exclude the extreme Aryans. And one of his tactics for winning over the moderate Aryans is pointing out some of the extreme Aryans and saying, well, hey, you moderate Aryans disagree with the extreme Aryans on this. Let's scapegoat the extremists and find the middle ground between us, and that way we can get along with you and you can get along east and west. And that really is the forging of the doctrine of the Trinity right there in the 360s and 370s AD in this attempt to unify the, the empire empire and reunite with the moderate
1: Aryans. And I think we can say in the creed, the filioque, which is the father and son proceeds, the Holy Spirit proceeds from the father and son with the father and son is worshiped and glorified, where the Eastern church says that the Holy Spirit proceeds from the father.
0: Well, Athanasius, because he was at the Council of Nicaea, he would be like, What are you guys in the West talking about? There's no filioque. I was there at the Council of Nicaea. We never said that the Holy Spirit proceeded from the Son and the Father, just the Father. Mm -hmm. Look at the original documents. There's no and from the Son in there.
1: (laughs) Well, hold on. Athanasius was just a young pup back then. So you're you're putting into into Athanasius' mouth words that are not in the evidence. sir. The
0: Filioque does not show up in history for many decades after Athanasius' well, death. I, I, Another I, thing that but um, but on but the I, subject Are, of, are you disagree?
1: Here's the question. Are you disagreeing? I mean, basically, one of the big differences between the Orthodox and Eastern Church in the, is the creed itself, which is uh, the Western Church says that the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. Yeah. The Eastern Church says the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father.
0: Correct. And that and there is- That no- would give me
1: a hint of Arianism in the Eastern Church, right? The Father is the Father is set apart, different than the Son, so different that the Holy Spirit can only proceed from the Father. It does not proceed from the Father and the Son.
0: I actually do think that you can see in Eastern Orthodoxy to this day, their version of the Trinity is a little bit more hierarchical and does place a little bit more uniqueness on God the Father than Latin Trinitarianism does. And I think you can, in a certain sense, still see that that's the legacy, that the Eastern Church was more moderately Aryan, and right. that the Western Church was more anti-Aryan, and that that legacy does show up in the filioque controversy and is part of the reason why the East and West aren't unified. And, for, and to give Athanasius his due, he went to heal that division— because he had the support of the West, because he was the hero of the West. Remember, he had lived in Trier, Germany for a long time in exile. He had lived in Rome for a long time. So he had strong ties with the important Western bishops, and they respected him. Because the people who respected Athanasius the most were not the people who saw how he ruled. They were people who interacted with him when he was in exile. He was good at being a, oh, poor helpless me, I'm such a victim, Uh, When he's in exile, he was less good at winning friends while he was actually in power because he ruled with violence. And so the people closer to him geographically tended to not like him. The people further away from him geographically had more support for him. But he uses his clout basically to try and knit east and west together. And he, he, he succeeded, I should say in that task in his day, but that um, success did not endure for forever, as we know that the East and West do eventually split. And some of the residual doctrines of the Trinity questions are part of the reason for that split. And that does go back to the East being more Aryan really than the West. And maybe the Eastern Orthodox people won't like that uh, classification or that description, but I think it's true. And, um, I will also say another thing, speaking of things that Athanasius never wrote, Athanasius never wrote the Athanasian Creed. The Athanasian Creed, which the East does not recognize, nor does does the Egyptian church recognize, and the Egyptian church loves Athanasius more than anybody, the Egyptian church and the Eastern church to this day have no idea. They're like, this Athanasian Creed, what are you talking about? Athanasius never wrote a creed creeds come from councils, not from individual people. The Athanasian Creed is probably from the late 400s or early 500s AD. It was written in Latin, a language which Athanasius might've spoken, but he never wrote in, he wrote in Greek. And so the Athanasian Creed, basically what happens, this is after Athanasius's death in 381, there's the Council of Constantinople where the Emperor Theodosius the Great says, no more writing creeds, we're done. This is the final creed, and the, the creed to this day that's recited as the Nicene Creed is the creed from the Council of Constantinople. But he's like, we, we're not writing any more creeds, this is it. But some people in the West were not entirely satisfied with the lack of Trinitarianism in the final version of the creed, so they wrote the Athanasian Creed, but in order to get around this, um, this rule that said you can't write new creeds, they attributed it to Athanasius so that they could say that it was actually from before this uh, rule was made but the Athanasian Creed, which the Catholic Church and many Protestant churches to this day recite, was not written by Athanasius. It was written illegally about 100 years after Athanasius had died. And Athanasius, it doesn't even actually sound like Athanasius. If you read Athanasius and read the Athanasian Creed, you'd be like, that's not Athanasius. Um, so uh, anyway, you Catholics and Protestants who, for whatever bizarre reason, recite the Athanasian Creed, you are you're, you're reciting a forged document from 100 years after his death.
1: Although the Catholic Church during the mass never recites the Athanasian Creed. It's always the Nicene Creed.
0: Yeah, and but I've heard Protestant churches recite the Athanasian Creed. And I'm like, I'm just like, what are you guys doing? Like Protestants, come on. Like,
1: well, all right, I'm gonna take a shot. All
0: right, take shots.
1: Pro- Protestants in theology, don't go in philosophy, don't go, usually don't go well together.
0: Well, how about this? We can say that most of the people who recite the Athanasian Creed are Calvinists. So maybe we can say that it's it's John Calvin's fault and, and we can agree on that.
1: There, there's a lot of things that are John Calvin's fault. Um, but I think the...
0: I think, I actually do think it is kind of John Calvin's fault because John Calvin liked the Athanasian Creed because he, he didn't like Servetus and that it was a way of getting back at the at Servetus and emphasizing the Trinitarianness of Calvinism was emphasizing the Athanasian creed. Like you go on the, uh, we, well, all right. For, for
1: Calvinism. I don't know how they can really believe in the Trinity since they can't believe that Jesus is fully man and fully human since everything's determined. And mm-hmm. since if God didn't take a ri- risk in Jesus, because because Jesus could have said, no, I'm not doing it. I'm going to, you know, when, when you look at the, the temptations in the desert, right? If everything was predetermined, where's the temptation? Well,
0: where's if the being fully is God, human? where's the temptation?
1: Yeah. Where, where's the being fully human if you weren't tempted? Where's the be? you know, um, if I had a Calvinist once, I said, does God take risks? And I said, yes. And he goes, no. I said, well, then you don't believe in the Trinity. What? You don't believe in the Trinity? Because Part of the Trinity is that Jesus is fully man and fully God. That's oh, basic believe. Trinitarian theology, not not your biblical Unitarianism, but Trinitarian theology. Man, God has to be fully man. Jesus has to be fully man and fully God. And it, your theology makes sense about the temptation, which is you could say, well, "Of course, he was human. He was tempted." Okay. I I, as a Trinitarian could say, uh, who believes in free will, of course he was tempted. He was fully human and fully God. A Calvinist who's a determinist says, how do you say he was tempted? How do you say he was tempted? If God is completely sovereign and everything's been determined and that's it, there is no temptation and therefore, there is no fully human because he doesn't understand our sorrows. Okay, so you let's have...
0: uh, let's pick up on that theme and talk about what Athanasius believed about the human, yes. the, how the humanity and divinity of God interacted. Because this is another point that I want to take Athanasius to task for. Like I, I know that I, I, I aspire to be fair in my descriptions of these people that we're talking about even the ones that i don't particularly like like athanasius that i hope that i am even in my dislike that i am being uh fair and that i am judging them accurately even if i'm judging them to have fallen short so one thing that i think that could be accused of athanasius not being fully orthodox is on his view of the incarnation and i know that people are like Sam, how could Athanasius be heretical on his views of the Incarnation? Well, uh, there's actually a really good video by my friend Jake, Jake Brancatella, the Muslim metaphysician, who did a video like a month ago. While, we, while While we're in the middle of our Athanasius series, he did a video that I actually really agree with that shows that Athanasius was probably what we would call an Apollinarian. Apollinarianism is the belief that the incarnate Jesus did not have a human soul, but only had a divine soul. There's a human body, but a divine or a God mind or a God soul or a God center of consciousness. In other words, there is no human mind in the incarnate Jesus. There is a human body, but there is basically the second of person of the Trinity is the mind or the person inside the body of the incarnate Jesus without there being a human center. And so you're saying, Hank, in order for the temptation to make sense, there needs to be a human soul or a human center of consciousness to be the um, target of temptation. But Athanasius, I'm not sure, would agree with that. So like, let me read this quote from Athanasius. Consequently, the term which he used in the end made This he has explained in the beginning by manifested, for by the signs and wonders which the Lord did, he was manifested to not be merely man, but God in a body and Lord also the Christ. For the signs which actually took place show that he who is in a body was God and also the life and the Lord of death. He put on the created body that God created for him for our sakes and preparing for him the created body, and in the next place when he put on a created nature and became like us in body, and in the next place when he put on a created nature, oh, whoops, sorry. Reasonably he was therefore called both our brother and firstborn, for though it was after us that he was made man for us and our brother by similitude of body. So basically when, when Athanasius is describing the incarnation, the human part of Jesus is a body or a nature, but he Athanasius never in all of his writings mentions a human soul inside the incarnation. There's another place where he describes as a foreshadow of the incarnation is Aaron, the high priest, when he puts on his high priestly robe. That is a foreshadow of Christ putting on humanity. So Aaron, basically, when Aaron puts on a robe, Aaron doesn't change. Right, It's still Aaron's mind, it's just now that there's a robe on top of him. When Christ becomes incarnate, Christ doesn't change. He just puts on like a human robe or puts on humanity like it's a garment. Um, and this is another thing. Uh, this is in Against the Arians. Athanasius says, being God, he had his own body, and using this as an instrument, he became man for our sakes. So again, it's this idea that the human body is not itself conscious, the human body is animated and an instrument of the second person of the Trinity and that there is no human soul there. And so this is from a scholar, I believe a Catholic scholar, um, and he says this, to describe what happened in his becoming man, Athanasius says that he took flesh or a body or that he fashioned a body for himself in the Virgin's womb. In this body, he dwells as in a temple. In the first place, his regular description of Christ's human nature as flesh or body seems to point in this direction, as does his failure to make any unambiguously clear mention of a soul. The fact must be faced that his thought simply allowed no room for a human mind. As we have noticed, he represented the word as the unique subject of all of Christ's experiences, human as well as divine. So much was this the case that he regarded his death as the separation of the word from his body and spoke of the descent of the word into hell. So I think that it's reasonably fair to say that Athanasius' view of the incarnation is what we would call Apollinarianism, which lacks a human soul or a human mind. There's just a human body as the human nature. And the mind or the soul is the second person of the Trinity, basically God inside a body. But not a union of a full human with a soul with a divine nature. So, this, this idea will later be termed heretical. It's not deemed heretical in Athanasius' own day, but at the councils of Ephesus and the Council of Ch- Chalcedon specifically in 431 or 435 and 451, I believe, I might be getting those years slightly incorrectly. It will become um, heretical to, uh, to not acknowledge that Jesus has a human soul. And I think by that later standard, Athanasius could be deemed heretical, but one could cut him some slack, I guess, in that he wasn't heretical or declared heretical in his own day.
1: Which, which will take me to a side street called Origin, and say, if you're willing to make Athanasius a saint for holding a heresy that wasn't a heresy at the time that he was holding it, I have a hard time understanding why Origen's not a saint. Because he was seen as doctrinal when he was he. So I find that interesting. And yes, if I watch a lot of Calvinist theologians on YouTube, and they love Athanasius,
0: I'm so sorry for you. But anyway, please continue.
1: Well, you know what? I do it so you don't have to.
0: Well, let me say my favorite YouTuber is also Calvinist. Shout out to Paul Vanderclay. I know we give you hard times. Um, it's just about the Calvinism. It's not about you personally.
1: No, Paul. We, we, we You know what, Paul? Uh, Sam loves you and I tolerate you. Um, <laughs> um, <laughs> but the, the issue is I think John Calvin and the strain of Calvinism that looks at Athanasius this way. And they they really, they love Athanasius. It's almost a form of Gnosticism. It's like, well, how could God be fully human? Um, And I agree it's a heresy in the essence. Jesus cannot save fallen humanity without being having the fullness of being human. That so we'll talk just about that part, which Sam you and I would agree on. He's gotta have the idea a of a human temple.
0: mind, a human soul. So there has to be a, all the parts of the human there, or all else the, it's
1: all, all the particulars. Or all else the it's the an
0: animated corpse. <laughs>
1: right. Yeah. Basically a zombie um and oh you know, G- why does jesus weep okay you know uh, his first miracle is to my baptist friends who don't drink his first miracle was turning water into wine he was grape juice well thankfully i'm a catholic so we know it's wine um so the so I will say this this is something there's a big difference between protestant theology and catholic theology Protestant theology says everything was set down in scripture that's all we need that's it okay except we and, need the
0: athanasian creed for some reason even though that was written or we the Ni- 500 years later
1: why do we need the nicene creed okay that's a
0: great question protestants so protestants out there who like the athanasian creed and like the nicene creed If we're doing the Sola Scriptura thing, what purpose does the Athanasian Creed serve exactly? I I am entirely confused by Protestants who give credence to creeds that are not from Scripture. I I honestly just don't get it. I don't get Uh, it at all.
1: uh, I'm often confused, but the, the best line I heard was from a priest who I'm very close to, Father Max, we said, think of Jesus' life as an explosion, and waves just keep on emanating out because of Jesus being fully God and fully man. He understands that explosion, but we as men have a hard time, and no matter how smart you are, no matter how gifted you are, Origin being extremely gifted, Augustine being extremely gifted, you can't put your arms around it. It's impossible to put your arms around. So, Athanasius seems to forefront the divinity of Christ.
0: Absolutely, yeah.
1: Okay. Now,
0: and I think that perhaps one of his fears of giving Jesus a human soul is that it would diminish Jesus's divinity. And if, as we all know, if there's one thing that Athanasius isn't going to budge an inch on, it's right. the full divinity right. of Jesus, and I think that's one of, I think that's one of the things that's tugging him in the direction of this Apollinarianism is, is right. that that tendency. Yeah.
1: And so I think the, so now I'm going to get into a little Catholic ecclesiology and theology, which is, why do we have a magisterium? Because one man. So everybody goes, po- the Pope. Well, the Pope makes all the decisions. Well. Father Eric and others would disabuse you of that situation, okay? We need a magisterium. We need a group of men, hundreds, thousands. Why? Because we need to, what you and I are doing in this conversation is a small part. We're bumping against each other. Well, oh, Sam, you gave me an idea I haven't thought of before. I I don't think I give you any ideas you haven't thought of before, but you give me some. And we do that because that's the only way that we can grow and understand whether it's the physical world or the spiritual world or both together is by interacting. So, you know, um, my favorite theologian of the 20th century Cardinal Ratzinger also had a great interlocutor in Hans Urs von Balthasar. Okay. Um, The, um, Augustine had a great interlocutor in St. Ambrose or Gregory the Great. Um, You can't just do this on your own. And so the idea is, well, it's clear that the Trinity is found in Scripture. Well, show me exactly what verse it says that there's a Trinity. I'd like to see it. I, I can show me too. I'm
0: I'm still waiting for that. Uh, you yeah. know, I I, I, I keep can getting pushed Christ. out of churches for for not believing this trying God thing. But it's well, like, uh, it, what if verse? You,
1: if you uh, would read Isaiah correctly, oh, you know, if
0: I'd read it correctly, I see. I'm yeah, kidding. yeah. Well, you, you know, read I mean, correct.
1: That's what you know. God has called me to help you. Um, is, but you know, I could sit and point and say, uh, Almighty, you know, uh, Almighty God. Okay, uh, you know, Emmanuel, God is with us. Um,
0: Who's the Almighty God in the Nicene Creed? We believe in one God, the who Almighty?
1: They're all Almighty because they're all one. They're three in well, one. That's and it's, the a Athanasian relationship, Creed. it's a relationship of love, my you friend. You see, this is the difference between love.
0: the Athanasian Creed and the Nicene Creed. In the Nicene Creed, we believe in one God, the Father, Almighty right. Maker of heaven and earth. And so and Almighty earth. is a unique word yeah. applied to the Father. But in Jesus the, is, at the Nation Creed it says the Father's Almighty, the Son's Almighty, the Spirit's yeah. Almighty. Yet but Jesus is
1: almighty. Homoousius with the Father.
0: Yeah, but it doesn't call him Almighty in the <laughs> in the Creed. It's yeah. actually interesting in the Book of Revelation, Jesus is given a lot of the names and titles of God, like Alpha and Omega, beginning and the last, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. But one of the titles that even the book of Revelation keeps for God the Father alone is Almighty. Uh, God the Father reserves that title for himself, even in the book of Revelation. So uh,
1: I'll point be, that out. Be careful, Sam. You're going into paganism. Jesus you know, Jesus is another God in Revelation. And Here he comes he, on, a, he, on a white horse, baby. He is a
0: man uh, lifted up to all authority in heaven <laughs> and earth by God which the book of Revelation makes pretty clear. All right, but speaking of um, of the Trinity, this is another quote that we need to get to before we're done with Athanasius. So this is something that he wrote. Um, one of the disagreements in his later life, like the, the father-son disagreement was the main thing that was the theological disagreement between him, him and the Arians. But later in his life, the the nature and status of the Holy Spirit starts to become a question. So this is a letter from later in uh, Athanasius' life um, to a guy named Serapion uh, uh, concerning the Holy Spirit. And I would say that this letter is a contender for the first fully Trinitarian document in Christian history. And it's from the 360s AD. So I will admit that Athanasius, later in his life, seems to finally be a full-fledged Trinitarian. I think that we had gone through many church fathers up until this point, and I think that you would agree, Hank, that we could find Trinitarian deficiencies in all of them, from Justin Martyr calling uh, the son a second god or a different god, to uh, even Novation in his work on the Trinity saying that... um, uh, the one true God is God the Father alone. You know, there, there, are, we can see development of the doctrine of the Trinity. And so then the question is, when does the full-fledged thing finally appear? And I think that you can say that the full-fledged thing appears probably in the 360s AD. And it seems to be Athanasius or perhaps a few other characters who are the first to really come up with the Trinity uh, in a way that we can recognize as the doctrine of the Trinity. So here is one of the quotes that I think might be just about the first Trinitarian quote in, in history. We might well wonder at their, so he's criticizing people who think that the Holy Spirit is a creature. One of Athanasius's points is just as the sun is not a creature, the Holy Spirit's not a creature. So this letter is addressed at, uh, at his friend to criticize the idea of people who believe that the Holy Spirit is a creature. All right. So that's the context. We might well wonder at their folly, inasmuch as they will not have the Son of God to be a creature. Indeed, their views on this are quite sound. And he's talking about the moderate Arians here, who have finally decided that the Son is not a creature, but they still kind of think the Holy Spirit might be a creature. How then have they endured so much as to hear the Spirit of the Son called a creature? Because of the oneness of the Word with the Father, They will not have the Son belong to things originated, but rightly regard him as creator of things that are made. Why then do they say that the Holy Spirit is a creature who has the same oneness with the Son as the Son with the Father? Why have they not understood that just as by not dividing the Son from the Father, they ensure that God is one, So by dividing the spirit from the word, they no longer ensure that the Godhead in the triad is one. Triad is the Greek word trias, which is the Greek word for trinity. So this could also be translated as trinity. That is, they no longer ensure that the Godhead in the trinity is one, for they tear it asunder and mix it with a nature foreign to it and of a different kind and put it on a level with the creatures. On this showing, once again, the triad, or trinity, is no longer one, but is compounded of two different natures, for the spirit, as they have imagined, is essentially different. What doctrine of God is this, which compounds him out of creature and creator? Either he is not a triad, but a dyad, with the creature left over, or if he be triad, as indeed he is then how do they class the Spirit who belongs to the triad with the creatures which come after the triad? For this once more is to divide and dissolve the triad. Therefore, while thinking falsely of the Holy Spirit, they do not think truly even of the Son. For as they thought correctly of the Word, they would think soundly of the Spirit also who proceeds from the Father, And belonging to the Son is from him given to the disciples and all who believe in him. So, boom, you've got Father, Son, Holy Spirit, all sharing one essence, all being a triad or a trinity that belongs to the Godhead. But this Godhead is still one in one sense and three in another sense, same substance, same divinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit even i will grant that that sounds quite a lot like the doctrine of the trinity it just seems a little bit about 330 years too late in my estimation
1: <laughs> well that's because you're a protestant you think everything was done uh, and all knowledge was given uh you know when when scripture was uh, written I believe that
0: Jesus was the full and final revelation uh, of from God, so uh, I, I don't think that we needed people like Athanasius to sort things out for us three hundred and thirty years uh, later.
1: Well, there's there's many Protestants who believe that when Jesus died, mar- when Jesus and the apostle died, miracles ended, right?
0: Well, that's silly.
1: Well, well, I mean. It sounds Calvinist to me.
0: <laughs> it sounds like more Calvinism.
1: Uh, I, <laughs> you know, the the Calvinists aren't here to defend themselves, and that's okay. Um, but I well, think we're the, gonna we're
0: gonna fix that. We're gonna we're gonna have an episode with Hank and Trip, and Trip is going to. I know that we have been bashing Calvinism in their absence. Tri, Trip is going to defend Calvinism in the honor and dignity of John Calvin for us, so we will rectify this error of uh, Sam and Hank mutually beating up on Calvinism and we can't find anything (laughs) to agree on ourselves.
1: Well, you know, um, so, I mean, I can only talk about my own short life and say that the Hank of 23 is, is far different than the Hank of 63 when it comes to knowledge, wisdom, um and what i what i look at 63 is say gee man there's still so much that i don't know and don't understand and i think the idea that the apostles had a, a a gift of the holy spirit that wrote as all scripture is god breathed as paul said but I don't believe the apostles said, OK, here's scripture. We're done. That's it. Go ahead and live your lives. Because that doesn't seem like how the earliest church fathers, the patristic, fa- the apostolic fathers acted. OK. Um, they certainly kept on referring back to the apostles, right? They kept on saying, let's look. But they would also, I mean. This is Uh, something
0: that I might disagree with you about. I actually think that a lot of the early church fathers, including the ones who were important for the development of doctrine, would always try and defend themselves as being the true explainers of the apostolic teaching. I think that there was a certain sense in which the early church was kind of sola scriptura like in that they didn't want to be seen as innovating. They wanted to be seen as carrying on the pure, unchanged tradition and teaching of the apostles.
1: All right, so let me read something to you. Tell me where you find this, where Where does a Protestant find this in Scripture? This is from St. Ignatius of Antioch in 110 A.D. So he's definitely in that. I think apostolic. it's more like
0: 140 or 150, but go ahead.
1: 110. I have no taste for corruptible food nor for pleasure of this life i desire the bread of god which is the flesh of jesus christ who is the seed of david for i desire to drink his blood which is love incorruptible okay now that's that's on the eucharist okay that's the that is saint ignatius saying that's the actual body and blood of christ now i can find an inference of that in scripture from Jesus himself in John, right? If you do not eat of my flesh or drink my blood, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. And what mm-hmm. happened after that? The Jews said this is a hard thing. Type, it? Yeah. Yeah. You know, and they and many left him. Okay. So if we take you know, obviously on a solo scriptura basis, you have rabid disagreement with the sacramentalists like myself and others. Hey, we'll and, throw
0: the Calvinists a bone. Even the Calvinists believe in the true spiritual presence of Christ in the Eucharist. Calvin correct. taught that.
1: Right. So my point is, is that was this something that was transmitted orally? And I would say yes, because most people in the time that the apostles were writing were not literate. Mm -hmm. I have to teach you by word of mouth.
0: Nor was it easy to carry around an entire Bible made out of parchment and not have it be damaged. It would have weighed quite a bit. And it's like, I've often wondered when was the first time that all of the books of what we would call the New Testament were in one place together. And I think it might honestly have been origin. Maybe it was before then, um, maybe in Rome or maybe in Alexandria or Ephesus or Antioch, there was a time where all of the books of what we would now call the New Testament were finally kind of in one place and could be read all at the same time by someone. But you know, it, it took a while. These letters were uh, these letters and books were written all over the Roman Empire and you had to make copies of them to spread them around, which is a very labor intensive and expensive process because you needed paper and you needed to copy it by hand, etc. And so it's not like they were all made in one place. They're all made in different places. You know, Paul's sending these letters all over the Aegean Sea. The Gospels are written in different places. You know, the Apostles of Peter, etc. Um, You know, John might not have written the book of Revelation until like the 80s or the 90s AD. And even so then he sends it to the churches in Asia. So like, when do you actually have all of this all together is a very interesting question. But it might not have been for, I don't know, a couple 100 years or more until someone could have read the New Testament. We so, know that Origen was probably reading everything that we would call the New Testament. Sure. But he also had a lot of books that we wouldn't call the New Testament that he thought were the New Testament. So that's a different problem.
1: Right. So if I'm the Bishop of Ephesus, right, in 150 AD, how am I catechizing my my flock?
0: You probably have a couple books, maybe the Gospels. You might have... Uh, the epistle to the Ephesians and a few other things, but it's, you are right. And I will grant that a lot of it is oral tradition and habit. And um, I don't know, various forms of non written transmission from previous generations.
1: Right. Yeah. And how is the Canon? So I hear solo scripture and I go, okay, who created the Canon? Who
0: decided upon the Canon? I mean, it's a different and difficult and interesting question. It, I think that even the people who would say, even a Catholic would say that the goal of the canon is to be all of the writings of the apostolic generation and no further than that. So even a Catholic who says that we have the authority to decide would agree that you're um, submitting that decision to a higher criteria, which is it's the apostolic writings. So I can agree with the criteria without needing to agree with the authority of the institution that claims to be uh, making that decision for itself.
1: Oh, I, yes. How about that? Well, <laughs> it's not like yeah. I haven't thought about these things, Hank.
0: Yeah, no. right.
1: Here's the thing though, you you thought about it, but you understand that solar shore is a very is very weak sauce.
0: And I I will say that this is one of those things that is part of the reason why I've enjoyed this Church Fathers series, is that I think that it is a weird thing that the adventure down Sola Scriptura that the Protestant Reformation started has led to more disagreement than agreement in many instances. And I find it utterly baffling, you know, when I'm getting elbowed out of a church for not believing in the Trinity, I'm like, show me a Bible verse that says that God's a Trinity, and they you've got literally zero verses that say that God is a Trinity. Well, and yet they're still insisting that, oh, you're reading this wrong, or if you look over here and knit this together with that over here, then it would be a Trinity. I'm like, you don't believe in the Trinity because of sola scriptura. You believe in the Trinity because of Athanasius. And, and, other, and
1: others after and others, Athanasius. But let's okay. say
0: if we had to give one person the, the largest share of the credit. It
1: the would be Athanasius. Would,
0: it would be Athanasius. Yeah.
1: But what's interesting is I would suggest you go to Saddleback Church. Say I'm a biblical Unitarian. They say you got to be out and say, hey, by the way, why do you have a woman pastor? <laughs> why, Rick, are you fighting on that? Well, we see women should be pastors. I said, so what did. What did Paul Why don't you say? take
0: communion every week, Saddleback Church? Right. Seems like Paul recommended taking communion every week in 1 Corinthians.
1: Right. Or Paul basically says, I suffer no woman to teach. What did he mean by that? Okay. <laughs> well, I'm suffering so women shouldn't teach. I mean, Rick Warren is well known for picking out the right uh, translation of the Bible to give him what he wants. Okay. This is not utter nonsense. This is so right. let
0: me ask a question. Do you Catholics agree about everything
1: amongst yourselves? You know what? Um, let's put it this Maybe way. Maybe not. not. <laughs> no, but here's the beauty of the mass, my friend. Disagreement can't change the form and function of the mass.
0: And I think that it's true that Protestants need to find some form that's deeper than mere propositional uniformity for right. unity in their churches and i think that most of the time when there's unity within a church like even let's say like a small um evangelical bible church of the kind that seems to not really like my presence i bet <laughs> that if i were to go around and do a private survey of the members of the church and ask them their views on the trinity and writing that I would get dozens of different interpretations of the Trinity, multiple heresies, and probably new heresies invented out of whole cloth that the world has never seen before. And so, okay, so if it actually turns out that Sam is not really that unique in disagreeing with the doctrine of the Trinity, it's actually relatively common in this church that most people either misunderstand or have a different interpretation of the doctrine of the Trinity than the Orthodox one. What is actually holding the church together if it's not actually that propositional uniformity? And I would say that it's something like submission to the leadership is really more what the the form of unity that is causing the church to not be constantly at each other's throats over the doctrine of the Trinity rather than actual propositional uniformity.
1: Right. But and then we go back that I would say you have to have participational uniformity because human beings will never have proposition and, and a lot of times I will say that most people won't think through doctrines, right? So if Sam was just a quiet guy, was a biblical Unitarian, never said anything, kept his mouth shut, right? Didn't you'd have be, a YouTube
0: channel that could get right, discovered.
1: You would be a fine,
0: you would be a f-
1: fine, upstanding evangelical. Okay. It happens
0: all the time until uh, I get all found right. out.
1: All right. But the, the the situation is, I I would question, I I'd be lo- I'd love to take five or six pastors and say, give me your theological view of the Trinity.
0: You'd get five or six uh, different heresies.
1: Correct. Right. Okay. Um. And. Hence Hank will go back to Origen, who should be a saint, who says when he discussed the Trinity and figured out he said God is not Jesus, God is not the Holy Spirit, Jesus is God, but he's not God the Father and He's not Holy the Holy Spirit. Basically, it's almost you have to define it in a negative. Okay, you can't because if you try to define it in a positive, you'll define it almost as a pantheist or do the William. Who's that? the great uh,
0: William Lane Craig,
1: William Lane Craig, who's who's basically, you know, a tra- believes in the Trinity as a transformer. God isn't fully God until they're all working together.
0: Right. And then okay. he also calls himself a neo-Apollinarian, right? The same heresy yeah. that we were talking and, about. And by the way, Athanasius. a
1: Molinist.
0: Yeah. Okay. So, but it, at least uh, he can uh, pull Athanasius into his corner on the Apollinarianism thing. So tying things back to Athanasius a little bit, okay. I think that one of the legacies of Athanasius that I think is very regrettable is this intolerance for propositional disagreement on trying to understand who God is, how God relates to Jesus, how the, God relates to the Holy Spirit. I think in the pre-Nicene period, there's disagreement about these things. And we can read books where people are criticizing each other's positions. But in a stronger sense, I think that even people who disagreed about these questions were still able to commune with each other. And that the church had a degree of unity through its shared identity as a persecuted religion that allowed there to be disagreement on these subjects. And we can see biblical Unitarianism back in the pre-Nicene period. We can see some kind of logos incarnational something, even though it seems a little bit Aryan by my estimation in the pre-Nicene period. And that these two positions recognize each other and understood each other, disagreed, but were still mostly in communion with each other. I think that this Aryan conflict drove a wedge and made this particular topic radioactive. And that the reason why... A evangelical Bible church will either excommunicate or gently push out someone like me for disagreeing about these propositions is in some sense the legacy of Athanasius living on, whether they know that or not. And I, when I'm seeing someone telling me through gritted teeth that, Sam, you're going to hell because of your deficiencies on the doctrine of the Trinity, I, in some sense, recognize the spirit of Athanasius as a contentious, divisive, um, judgmental spirit living on in them. And I find this extremely regrettable. And I would blame Athanasius more than anyone else for this idea that someone trying to understand scripture and Christian tradition and make the best sense of it they can, if they get one jot or tittle here, they're wrong, is a damned heretic in league with Satan, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, that cannot be stomached or tolerated. And I think that this is an unfortunate turn that happened in the Christian tradition in Christian history and Christian history. And I think no one bears more blame for that than Athanasius himself. And so that's my final and ultimate beef with him.
1: Well, I guess I could say what was said in the 80s, where's the beef and you gave it to me. Um, and- well, I think you have a point, but I think it's a, a feature, not a bug of, of, of at least the American church where they all seem to want to excommunicate each other over all, all types of issues. Right? Okay. I mean, I gotta say that, I mean, watching what's going on with Paul's church the problem is, is because once you you mean the you CRC
0: of discussing gay marriage,
1: right? I, I'm going to make so uh, a, a, I'm going to make a very controversial statement at the end. The Protestant faith is a faith of deconstruction; it just keeps on deconstructing. It started as a deconstruction when Luther created the onset of the Reformation. He found the deconstruction with Tumas Munster. Then you had the reformers. Then you had, the, I don't even want to pronounce his name right that Crazy Zwingli out of Switzerland. OK. Um, and then you come to the United States. So we'll, we'll move the Puritans over. And then okay, it, it, they just keep on deconstructing um, and. I think that the Protestant faith is a faith of materialism. It's, it's propositional. It doesn't read the, it reads the Bible literally. And so I have the proposition, here's the Bible, it's literal, okay? And therefore, at my reading of it, Sam, you're out. Hank, my reading of it, Hank, you're out, okay? It's, it's, it doesn't work. And we're seeing it whether it's the SBC, where in, in Rick Warren's mind, how many, you know, how many people can you get at the church is the greatest thing? It's like is that the greatest thing, Rick. Is there something greater than that? Or is it just how many, you know, what what how can I monetize this thing? All right. Um, and so this, deep, this this weird time that we're at, where you see people using vicious circle arguments saying, oh, anybody's a woman who claims to be a woman. So an African-American weightlifter said, I'm an Asian woman. And the woman who said that said, no, you're not. Said, I said I am, so I am. Okay. And I, I think that, well, God says it's okay. For gay marriage, and of course you have now. I'm watching uh, pastors who are f- for gay marriage and transgenderism, basically saying Paul's not part of the Bible. They just want the Gospels, because Paul's not God. Okay, it's it's basically it will deconstruct itself into an MSNBC TV show where everybody's waving a pride flag. And the only people left at the church will be a transgendered pastor who's basically closing the church down like a hospice. It won't. So, it, by it,
0: Protestantism, are you including biblical Unitarianism in that, or are we excluded? Because uh, I sometimes can't no, I mean, tell if I'm know, Protestant. First, first,
1: or not. first, you need to come back to the Holy Catholic Roman and Apostolic hey, as Church. As soon as
0: you go. guys, uh, as soon as you guys downgrade Athanasius from a doctor of the church and reconsider this whole homoousius stuff and go back to the simple uh, apostles I,
1: there's a lot of things our church has the Catholic church that I'd like to you know pick a bone with but at the end I subject I, I subject myself to the authority of the church because at the end I am not wise enough to determine the full truth of Christ and his church. Well, is Athanasius
0: able to do that? No. Well, then why is he a doctor of the church? If I hear doctor of the church, I hear infallible or at least completely trustworthy in all of his teachings. That's what it that's what it strikes my ears. Oh, completely
1: man. trustworthy doesn't mean infallible. Well, okay. <laughs> and obviously, what's <laughs> funny is within the Catholic Church, you have people fighting. About saying Athanasius is—it's a Catholic theologian that's saying his his teaching on the humanity of Christ is incomplete. Mm-hmm. Okay, you you have Catholic theologians fighting about Augustine, especially about the, the, his vision of the elect. Okay, mm-hmm. um, you know, I would say that the those who are church doctors are to be read because they will give you. Insight and wisdom that you do not have, but I'll say
0: it, I, I, there's some insight in Athanasius. I won't say it's all bad. Yeah,
1: yeah Just gotta you know. be
0: extremely careful. I hey, mean, just remember I think that, he didn't he didn't go after
1: you, you, you biblical Unitarians much at all.
0: Um, he would sometimes slander the Arians by comparing them to Paul of but well, uh, and actually, you know, I don't in, consider
1: that slander.
0: In, in <laughs> In future episodes, one of the people that we'll have to talk about is Marcellus of Ancyra, who is a friend of Athanasius. And Marcellus of Ancyra is strangely close to a biblical Unitarian. And in fact, one of his students, Photinus of Galatia, another guy that we should cover, although maybe uh, Marcellus and Photinus could share an episode, I'm not sure, was, was a biblical Unitarian. And that there's one thing that a biblical Unitarian and Athanasius could agree on that was anti-Aryan, that would sometimes cause us to be allies in this period, was that the word is not created. Because that is something that a biblical Unitarian and an Athanasian will affirm, is that the word is eternal and uncreated. And uh, if that is the main battle that you're fighting, and you want to find agreement on that against all else, there was actually some surprising allyship in certain points during athanasius's career with the the remaining biblical unitarians and we'll talk about that in some future episode
1: all right so who do we want to uh, work on, on our next um, episode
0: i think we maybe we should take a break from the roman empire and talk about a guy named afrahat uh who was a persian church father in uh, writing in Babylon in the 340s and 350s AD. He's an interesting character. I'll give a foreshadow to a future episode I have coming up. The patriarch of the Assyrian Church of the East, sometimes called the Nestorian Church, although they do not like that label, I should point out, has agreed to come on this channel. And I will be interviewing a patriarch uh, who uh, is the... Patriarch of one of the oldest churches in the world.
1: Well, and that's so to, a, I,
0: I look, as preparation for that, I should do some reading about the Syrian Church, and I think that this Afrohat guy, who he's there, he's one of their most famous figures, and so I think that we should read him.
1: Well, I'm looking forward to both. This uh, sounds like uh, sounds like uh, a, a wonderful uh, sides side street that we'll, we'll take, and I, I look forward to working with you on that
0: yeah sounds good all right but for now
1: oh, by the way ne- next week
0: yeah
1: sam sam will be getting the thunderdome created
0: I'll, I'll be hosting the thunderdome and i'll be moderating the great calvinist showdown between trip and hank so uh yeah
1: well, you know again um trip just remember i love heretics it's okay yes.
0: yeah all right, well, I hope, hope we did. I, I mean, I, I do intend to be fair to these people, and I try to be fair to Athanasius. I mean, he was he was a smart guy. He he loved, he he was committed to what he viewed as true, and seeing that his vision of the truth would triumph, and that he put all of his guile and wisdom or wiliness to the task of doing that. And even I will admit that Athanasius was motivated by his love of God and love of the truth to do what he did. Um, I don't think I won't. I don't have a cynical interpretation of Athanasius that he was just in it for political power or anything like that. He was doing what he did because he was trying to preserve and protect the truth, the the church from error, in service to God. That was his motivation. I won't deny that. But I think that he resorted to violence, and that I think that he was intolerant and that I think that he was um, not as committed to some of Jesus's teachings on the topic of loving your enemies and forgiving your enemies and treating people with love and compassion as he should have been. And I think that he had a mix of zeal and intelligence, political acumen, and Machiavellianism that made him the perfect character for the fourth century Um, and, but I think his legacy is a mixed one and I, I can't give him my full endorsement or support. I think that he will have some things to answer for when he is judged before the throne of his Lord and savior. And, um, that I think that he will have some explaining to do. I'll leave it at that.
1: Excellent. All right. Wonderful, wonderful conversation, Sam. Okay. Next time, uh, Afrahat, the Persian sage. All right. Goodbye, everyone. Goodbye.